Welcome to Know Your Risk Radio on 97.3 Cairo FM and AM 770 KTTH. Know Your Risk Radio is hosted by Zach Abraham, Chief Investment Officer at Bulwark Capital. Whether it's preservation of capital or an aggressive growth strategy, every investor needs a clearly defined risk profile. Know Your Risk Radio is brought to you by Bulwark Capital, helping families navigate the ever-changing and often volatile markets. Know Your Risk Radio starts now. Here's your host, Zach Abraham. And we are back. Thank you so much for joining us for yet another of the most scintillating hours in finance radio. Pumped to be here today. Got a great show planned for you. Also have an interview and I'm going to do this a little bit differently. We're going to air about 20 minutes of the interview on the actual show. The interview goes for about 55 minutes. Um, And guys, you can always get all of our stuff for free. You don't have to pay for anything. Just if we cut off an interview, it's not a tactic on our part. It's because you only have an hour on the uh, hour airtime. And that's one of the reasons we do the podcast too, just so we can put kind of an unconstrained uh, stuff on there. But if you're not listening to the Daily Dots with us every day, that's kind of what this interview is going to be. It's going to be Chase Taylor, our head of research. And, and we had some other interviews and I actually bumped our planned interview this week until next week. And the reason why I did it is because I just think it's really important. Like I said, I've just I've never seen markets more offside from fundamentals than at present. And I think it's really important that without any market cheerleading, without any nonsense, you just hear what the facts are. And the data, the economic data right now is really interesting to me because again, I've done this for a pretty long time, almost 20 years. Closing in on 20, I think 17 and a half or 18, something like that, and been through some very wild markets. This does not mean that I am 100% right. This doesn't mean I'm guaranteed to be right. But I will say this in my career, I have never seen a bigger separation between market action and pricing and underlying economics, right? Now, could I be wrong? Yes. And we're going to talk about different ways that we could be wrong. But I bring this up in equal parts as a warning, but also just fascination. You know, we, we, a lot of market participants and investors are used to market prices being somewhat real and somewhat reliable and somewhat reflective of certain things. And there are things out there that make sense. There are things out there that are cheap. The, the the issue that we have is that there's just no correlation to any of it, meaning, you know, some things are crazy expensive and then other things in the same sector that are better aren't. Um, you j- just, just these conflicts, you know, like a perfect example of that, you know, that we make in the interview is referencing, you know, like a stock like, and I'll, and I'll say this again, I'll challenge people to go out there. If you want to know what I'm talking about, when I say these prices don't make any sense, just go look at the balance sheet and the income statements and the rate of growth for revenue and profit for a company like Netflix, and then go compare it to Google and then come back and try to make a rational argument why you would pay double for Netflix. It just doesn't make any sense. You could use that same argument between Google and Apple. You could use it with it's so many different companies where, and usually price does have a lot of information in it. So I can look at the chart of a company, look at the PE ratio and, you know, usually go, okay, so 45, 45 PE, that's spendy. I bet you this company's probably growing revenue at 15 to maybe even 25%. You pull it up. Oh yeah, they're growing at 18, 19%. Uh, that growth seems to be accelerating a little bit year over year. Margins are getting a little better. That's pretty pricey, but you know, if they can keep that up for another three or four years, that can make sense. Right. So usually, and it usually works that way, you know, depending on the sector, you're like, you see a price, you see a multiple, see market cap and you're like, oh yeah, this is, and usually you go look underneath the surface and it's somewhere close to that. In this market, the price doesn't tell you anything. You pull up the facts and and you can be scratching your head for both reasons. Like why in the world would somebody sell this at this price? Flip side is I can go get you a whole list of things where you're literally, and it's not, I don't like the company. I don't like the management. Just looking at the data and the facts, scratching your head going, why, why would somebody pay that for that? You know, in some cases, it's like volunteering to pay $49.99 a month for Netflix. You're sitting there and why, 
Why, why would you do that when you can get the regular subscription for $16.99? You know what I mean? It, it, that's how crazy it is. So just wanted to have Chase on to provide some context, give you some real economic data and some real hit points. Um, market update this week. Um, it's really hard to j- draw a conclusion here. Um, and I'm kind of torn. Um, I, I think my feeling, and it's, it's, it's not much bigger than 50%, let's call it 58. I kind of feel like the tops are in for the year on the, on the indexes. Um, which is just crazy to me. Like the Dow's gone on a nice run here in the last two days. It really doesn't have an explanation with the way rates have gone and the dollar's gone. Um, you're seeing even bigger deltas before, as it relates to performances of individual indexes. Yesterday, I think the Dow was down, or the Dow was up like almost one and a half percent, and the Nasdaq was down thirty basis points. Um, you're just all of these things. Not any one of these things says anything concrete or specific. But I, all of these things are making me increasingly cautious, just because. This is, you know, before you get the big earthquake, maybe you feel a little tremor kind of thing. You, you, you look at economic indicators, you look at the VIX trading at 12 and a half, which is basically the market telling you there's absolutely no risk. Again, the, the, the delta and the daily performance of the indexes, it, it just leads me to believe that we're on shaky ground. Now, maybe I also would not be. So I said I'm 58% sure the tops are in for the year. Uh, the other 42% of me wouldn't be shocked to see this market rally accelerate into year end. And people are like, well, Zach, how can you say that all those things and say the market can rally? Well, because that's what it's done all year. Right? Like, I mean, you know, trend is your friend until it's not. I mean, so I, I don't think it's likely that you accelerate from here because there's just nothing to accelerate on. Not yet. Not yet. Not now. Not anything that's present. Um, people will, well, the Fed's going to cut rates. Yeah, the Fed's going to cut rates because growth is slowing. And the Fed's not going to cut as soon. I've heard Bill Ackman on CNBC saying the Fed's going to cut in the first quarter. I, I, I don't see it. Not at all. Not unless something really – and this is the whole problem with that bullish narrative at this point. Well, rates are going to go down aggressively next year. And you're like, yeah, if they do, it's because something really bad has happened. It's not good. And then then you also have to think about where rates need to go to really add an assistance to the underlying economy. Now, if the Fed were to cut by 25 basis points in January with the market rally, yeah, I bet you'd rally pretty nicely. Would it really do anything in the underlying economy? I don't think so. Why? Because rates rose so high so fast, the vast majority of the debt is way lower, meaning that you don't really provide economic relief. And again, especially with this rally that you've had this year, right? Meaning if, if let's say companies, you know, part of, part of the, like, for instance, you look at the Russell 2000, part of it getting beat up this year or really underperforming the indexes was this the the state of affairs if you will is so many of the companies that are in that index when you look through the Russell 2000 what you'll see is a lot of companies i want to say 30 35% of those companies are insolvent if they cannot roll their debt at or close to the current rates so if they've got to go up higher they're insolvent it's like 30 35% of the companies okay so that's why they've gotten hit and if you're looking at a scenario like how those rates are so much higher than what those companies can afford. So rates coming down by 25 or even 50 basis points, it doesn't change anything. Right? Not for those companies. You know, cuz you went up so high so fast, you got to cut a lot to get to a point where it's economically stimulative. Now, if you cut 25 50 basis points and the 30 year mortgage dropped a percent. Would you see some more? Yeah, I think you'd see it. And I think it'd probably peter out pretty quick. Why? Because where housing prices are, you just have an affordability issue. You're seeing, what was it? A record number of home sales fell through. It was like 17% of homes under contract fell through. It's one of the largest numbers on record. Why? 
I don't know why anecdotally on each one of those, but I will tell you, I, I would be absolutely gobsmacked if the biggest reason was financing fell through. Why would financing fall through? Math. You look at what the average income is for a lot of these people out here, and then you look at what the mortgage on a $750,000 house costs you, and a bank is not going to underwrite somebody for a loan when that loan, the monthly payment on that loan is the equivalent of 55% of their take-home income every month, right? Traditionally, the bank wants that ratio to 25 to 30 range. So I, it's just it's, – it's a – Hey, if nothing else, may you may you live in interesting times. Well, you know that's that's where we're at. Um, other things that happened this week, you had some earnings reports come out. Uh, everybody got really excited about GM because they burnt beat on revenues, uh, or they or they, they they did post a pretty good quarter. I think everybody got uh, uh, really excited about that stock buyback deal of theirs. Um, I'll tell you what. Now, now that I'm going to say this, it'll probably. <laughs> Who knows? It'll probably go up 30% before the end of the year. But, you know, I'm looking at companies like that. And I think companies like that, if you own them, I think you're seeing wonderful, uh, wonderful opportunities to, uh, to exit here. Why do I say that? Look at a company like GM. They're going to be buying back stock at these levels going into a recession. They can see through it. They see what's coming, right? Why in the world would you be buying stock back right now? Why would you? Then you look at the amount of CapEx that they announced that it's going to take to build these EVs that you're seeing demand falling off a cliff for. And then you watch the market reaction to that quarter. And it, I look, I, I'm not saying I don't get it. I get what the market saw and why it reacted that way. I just think it's an incredible example of just your head shakingly dumb. Like, you watch defaults on cars going up and you're going to rally GM Well, they're buying back stock. Yeah, which which is – I will be shocked if within a year or two that does not look like a horrific misallocation of capital, right? When you're a company like GM and you're so sensitive to unemployment and car delinquencies and all that kind of stuff and you look at leading economic indicators right now, why you'd be buying back stock here is beyond me. I mean everything would be telling you in history. Let's wait at least 16 months. Let's keep some powder dry. Um, what is, what's interesting is I would like to see what types – I'm going to keep my eyes on insider transactions for GM stock because what would be – and I don't know if we'll see it or not, but I think it would be really interesting if in the next week or so we saw a bunch of insiders dumping GM stock. Because I was – Chase and I were talking, like you're going to do a buyback right here. Okay, the only thing I could think of to give you reason to do a buyback is to give exit liquidity to a bunch of insiders. I just this is not the point in the cycle when you want to be doing that. Now that being said, there have been a lot of companies and a lot of firms out there that have done buybacks at rates that don't make sense because all you got to say these days is buyback and the stock market goes nuts and, and buys your stock. So that that could be it too. But um, other earnings again, I, you're not seeing horrible results. Results are kind of mixed, kind of muted. Um, the, the interesting thing about data and news that came out this week, um, and Chase and I are going to talk about this a lot in the interview. It's just the consistency of it, guys. I, again, I've been doing this for a while and I've always been into macroeconomics and I've always kept my eyes on the, you know, on the macro picture as we refer to it. Um, and it's usually a very mixed bag. What, what is so interesting about this is it is so uniform across all, virtually all sectors. Um, housing starts slowing down really fast. Uh, just all of these bullish narratives are evaporating right in front of your eyes. And it's so consistent. I mean, it's much more consistent than 0809, the, the leading economic indicators going into it. Um, and to watch the market just go completely the other way, it's it's fascinating. Um it really is. Uh, and, you know, I think there's a different, I think there's a several, I think there's several different reasons why people are like, well, why would it be doing that? You know, I think there's several different reasons. I think, you know, what happened in COVID, you've got, you know, we've talked about all these reasons, right? Record retail involvement. We know that retail is the least priced and sensitive investors in the, in the, in the whole space. Um, they also tend to follow, you know, the retail type stocks, the, the story stocks. Um, I, you know, the takeover of passive, we've talked a lot about that, that has a lot to do with it. 
um, you know, looking at federal deficits, you know, I think that has something to do with it. But bottom line is, I just think a lot of people are believing a lot of different things. And I just don't think enough people are doing the research. And we're going to drop some things on you uh, during that interview that kind of illustrate that. One of which is, and Chase is going to walk you through it, this whole, um, you know, I've heard guys like Dave Ramsey say it, and that's not a knock on Dave Ramsey. People all over CNBC, mutual fund managers. Look, man, housing is underbuilt here in the United States. It's just not true. We walk you through the data. It's just not true. We're not underbuilt at all. Everybody's like, well, we were underbuilt for so many years after the finance. And I'm like, yeah, and what caused the financial crisis? A massive overbuild. If you actually smooth out the numbers and Chase will walk through these in the interview, you're not. You're actually overbuilt still. The issue is you're underowned. You got record two home ownership, which is another top cyclical signal. Uh, Airbnb, right? BlackRock. It's not a. It's this whole narrative of we're underbuilt. It's just not true, and and we'll just show you in the data. And the the reason I want to put that out there right now is just show you yet another example of markets believing this and everybody saying it, and everybody believes the meme, and nobody takes the time to actually go look. Right. Let's pop the hood and take a look. Why don't we know rather than just pontificate and speculate about it? How about we actually take a look? So that's what we're going to do. And, and that's what we're, we've been doing with all this stuff. Um, yeah. And, and again, I, I, this isn't doomsday. I'm not telling you we're about to go into I, I'll say it again. I don't think it's going to be a depression or anything that's, you know, I don't think it's going to be super serious. I don't think it's going to be fun. I think you're going to see unemployment go up and GDP fall and deficits get even uglier. And, you know, you're going to go through all the normal stuff. Um, what's fascinating is how, like I said, completely opposite the average person is thinking about this and looking at the market. And yeah, I, I think there, like I said, I think there's behavior involved. I think there's animal spirits that came out during COVID and stimulus and rates and all that other kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, um, you know, fundamental research and keeping an eye, keeping your eye on the ball and paying attention to fundamentals, that's a big part of risk management. And here's the deal. I've been honest with you guys. I think both of our funds combined, most of our clients have a mix of the two. And I think combined, they're up 2% on the year. So we've really underperformed. Now, we substantially outperformed last year. So the net out isn't that bad. It's pretty close, actually, at the end of the day. But um, – you know, if you want to end up being on the right side of these things, you got to leave the party. You know, you got to leave the, like my coach said, nothing good happens after midnight. You know, nobody wants to leave, but you got to leave at some point. And when do you leave? You know, usually in every cycle, you see a point, like I said, I've never seen it this drastic, but you see a point where the price action continues on a bullish trend and the underlying economic data starts to deteriorate. And then that gap gets wide enough and the market corrects down. That's what we've always seen happen. I, I just have no reason to believe that's not going to take place this time. Um, and like I said, I, the other shame to me is if people get caught in that wash is, again, not all doomsday. The opportunities that exist on the other side of it that I don't think most people are realizing. And like I've told you, today's a perfect example. Everybody's like, oh, today's a pretty good day in the markets. And I'm like, yeah, markets are rallying because rates came down. There's like, well, that's why you got to be long stocks. Okay, well, the S&P, as of today, last I looked, was up half a percent. Our two-year U.S. government bonds today alone were up 1.3. And this is my whole point. If you're buying stocks because you think rates are going to come down, why? Why are you buying the S&P at 26 times earnings because you think rates are going to go down? Go out and buy bonds. Now, I think that you need to put some other things in the portfolio to hedge that risk too. And I think there's different ways to buy them. There's different ways, you know, different parts of it. I don't think it's that. I'm not just sitting there telling you right now, just go out and blanket and buy bonds. I wouldn't buy corporates. I wouldn't buy high yield. But do, do you get what I'm like? Again, today, even the Dow, our two-year treasuries are up more than the Dow. And the Dow went on a great run the last two days. Right. And that's that's a perfect example of how disconnected this market is. Economy's slowing down, therefore rate cuts are coming. And because rate cuts are company coming, because the economy's slowing down, you think stocks are a buy. Why wouldn't you buy bonds? Now, if we were looking at the SP trading at like 13 times earnings, okay. And if rates were even higher than they were now, I'd say, okay, yeah, you're right. I, you, you probably will get a bigger pop maybe on you know, uh, multiple expansion and things like that. But you know, we had a really nice day today. 
smoked the market. Actually, two days in a row now, which is kind of crazy this year. We haven't had really bad days, but just a lot of our stuff's been just flat, like the majority of the stock market has this year. Um, but yeah, a day where the markets are – two days in a row where the markets are going nuts because of lower interest rates, well, buy things that go up when interest rates go down because there's just a lot – you know. Again, I, I don't know what your story is. If, if we're going to have a recession and interest rates go down, keep buying stocks because their earnings are going to go down. Or why not just buy the bonds and collect a four and a half, five percent coupon while you wait? It, it's it's just well, because you know how much money bonds have lost. Yeah, you usually want to buy something after it's lost a lot of money. That's I, <laughs> yeah, that's where I like to do it. You know, buy low, sell high. Uh, no, no, no. You want to sell in your, you want to turn in your bonds after they've taken a 30 to 40% face plant. And you want to turn around and buy stocks in a slowing economy when the market's trading at 26 times earnings. And, and as silly as that sounds on the face of it, that's what the majority of investors are doing. So, which is why guys, you know, say it every week. If now isn't a time for risk management, I don't know what is right? Especially those of you closer to retirement, you just rode the biggest bull market in US history, both in duration and in size and amplitude. Okay. You have the opportunity at the end of that to sell stocks at one of the highest valuations in history, right? And many of the, the majority of the valuation metrics are at record highs. And on top of it, you got an option to buy risk-free assets paying four to 5%, the most they've paid in 20 years. I, doesn't guarantee we're right, man, but there's a it's a pretty easy setup. I mean, this setup has worked one way every single time it's ever happened. And everybody's like, yeah, but not this time. And I'm like, why? Well, just because, man. You know, you take, there's just no there there. It's going to be all about risk management. And like I said, especially you closer to – and it, it, like I said, this isn't risk management. I'm not just talking to you about risk management, about not losing. What I'm sitting there saying is you've not only are we not, not only we want to avoid that, which we do, but it's also about the opportunity cost. I think that's the big killer. I think there are incredible opportunities out there, right? Look at gold right now. Gold flirting with, I don't know where we finished today, but gold flirting with 21,000 or 2100 for the first time. Huge breakout in gold. Silver doing the same thing. Um. You know, you go look at those stocks with gold breaking out at 1100, the average gold or 2100, the average gold mining stock is trading like it it did when gold was at 1100, similar price, 1200. It's crazy because it's not tech. And some of the fundamentals and valuations on these things, mine, you know, hey, miners of any kind aren't the right business, but at a at a big enough discount, and right? This goes back to Buffett's old argument. Um, <clears throat> there aren't bad assets. There's just bad prices. You may not like gold mining stocks. You might like tech. That's fine. I get it. But at a certain point, that price is ridiculous for that tech company. And over here, I'm buying this thing at a price where it's already, you know, <laughs> it's priced as if it's about ready to go out of business. It's never been doing better. With the underlying commodity going up and with other commodities like oil going down, which is even better. It's nirvana for them. So anyway, give us a call, 866-779-RISK and 866-779-RISK. Lower your fees, increase your upside. You don't have to take this market smack on your own. There's a better way. Give us a call. Stick with us through the break. We'll be right back. You're listening to Know Your Risk Radio podcast. Download and subscribe at knowyourriskradio.com. This is Know Your Risk Radio with Zach Abraham. Listen to Zach discuss key investment strategies across several asset classes, not just stocks and bonds. Get your free copy of Zach's new booklet, Common Sense Investing. Go to knowyourriskradio.com. How many times in recent memory has your financial advisor not reacted to current events and also not made a change in your investment portfolio? Now, think about all the volatile events during that time that have threatened your retirement. That's Zach Abraham, Chief Investment Officer at Bulwark Capital and host of the Know Your Risk Radio podcast. Todd, we talk about it all the time, risk management. It's our number one focus. We actively manage every portfolio daily, looking for opportunities to lower risk, lower cost, and give you as much upside as possible. 
Let us show you how Bulwark's risk management strategy can protect that retirement you've worked so hard for. This is exactly why you need Zach and Bulwark Capital in your corner. You only get one retirement. Learn how Bulwark does it with their free common sense investing guide. Call 866-779-RISK or simply go to knowyourriskradio.com. That's 866-779-RISK or go to knowyourriskradio.com. Investment advisory services offered through Tech Financial LLC and SEC Registered Investment Advisor. You're listening to Know Your Risk Radio with Zach Abraham, Chief Investment Officer at Bulwark Capital Management. And we are back. Thank you so much for sticking with us. Now, I wanted to, I wanted to continue on that thought uh, that, that I had. We were talking about gold miners and silver miners. And just want to say anybody out there interested, like listening, I grew up in the gold mining industry. Father still is CEO of a publicly traded gold mining company. Spent my life around these companies. Um, I think that they are very compelling and very interesting right now. I am not advising you out and buy them. Um, what I am going to tell you though, and please don't forget this because you'll be happy if you don't, uh, don't let somebody convince you to go get a gold backed IRA and just put in a bunch of physical gold. Okay. They, we, we've talked about this on the show a bunch of times. Any one asset investor is not worth listening to. If their answer to all of your angst and all of your investment fears is one investment, run the other way, right? Run the other way. It's a one-way bet. It doesn't even matter if they're right or wrong. It's silly because nobody knows what gold's going to do because gold goes up for one reason and one reason only. More people are buying it than are selling it. That is it. That's it, right? Oil goes up. when we. If, if I see the economy of China booming, pretty safe bet to see that oil demand is going to go up, Right? When I see interest rates rise moderately, not the way we've seen over the last two years, but rise moderately over a you know six-month, 12-month period of time, probably an indicator that the underlying economy is pretty strong and it's probably going to be bullish for – probably going to mean banks make more earnings, right? Um, there are all of these things that have knock-on effects that when you see this thing happening over here, you're like, okay, chances are that's going to feed through over here, right? So I want to buy this thing. Gold doesn't have that. People are like, well, inflation. Really? How did gold perform 2021, 2022? Not very well. Didn't really even respond. I mean, it responded good coming right out of COVID, but nothing crazy. And it, and it basically retraced like everybody else did, the hammering it took during COVID. But, you know, then everything else just kept going to the moon and gold, gold stagnated. So just be careful with those people, right? And don't do it. And the other thing, you know, people are like, when are we going to buy physical? And I'm like, mm, I won't say never. But probably not. Why? We're going to buy the miners. If we want gold exposure, we're going to do it via the miners. Why? Because you get paid a multiple on the earnings. And I, like I've said to you guys, you know, you go back and host, look at it historically. When you see gold, gold and the miners have traditionally a four to one relationship. Sometimes it can get as high as five to one. Sometimes it can get as high, low as two and a half, three to one. But over time, that four to one relationship is pretty good. Meaning if you see gold go up a buck, you should see gold miners go up four. Right. If you see gold up 20%, expect to see gold miners up 80 to 100. And it's because unlike gold, the, the stock is priced at a multiple of their earnings. And that multiple rises drastically as the price of gold goes up. Because as the price of gold goes up, usually the miners' costs don't. Right. So they're not spending any more. It's over the long run, mining is not a good business, but over the short run, it can be incredibly wealth generating because you've got your fixed cost. You paid this much for the property, right? It take, costs you this much to, 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 to run the property. And there's a few variable costs in here and there, but pretty much everything is what it is, right? But if the value of the underlying commodity you're pulling out of the ground goes up 50%, as you can imagine, your income statement transforms in a very short period of time. And now all of a sudden, this company that was barely scraping by is throwing off 40% margins and raining cash. And again, we got to see the follow through. Gold would need to keep accelerating from here. But, you know, that gets us back to that whole conversation of there's no bad assets, there's just bad prices. And that is one of the things that makes the gold miners so attractive here. You know, just go pull up a chart of gold and go pull up a chart of GDX. You can see what I'm seeing in a second. You, you, you got GDX acting as if gold is trying to break through 1800. Meanwhile, it's making a new all-time high at 21. It's, it's just, it's, it's crazy. And there's so many examples of that. Chase and I are going to go through that in greater detail 
in the interview we do. But, you know, uh, Cole is another story. Coal is another one just like that. You know, I don't like coal. That's fine. You look at coal consumption. It's going up. It's not going down. Then you go look at coal mining companies. They, they're, they're just stupid cheap. It's almost like we've ESG'd the market, right? Like these companies trade on people's opinions of them as opposed to the facts. And I'm also, you know, I want to reiterate, I'm not saying tech's bad at all. There's several tech companies that I wished I would have bought, wished I'd have bought more of that I'd like to own someday. I, you just get to a point, you know, and I'll keep beating up on Microsoft. I mean, because I would love to own them at, at some level at some point. This is just, it's just stupid. You know, you go look at a, a 2.3% earnings yield on Microsoft when you get the a risk-free 5%. I, I, it just, I, just doesn't make any sense. Doesn't guarantee I'm right. But following my logic would make you right the vast majority of times in the past. So, and, and, and the, these are the things that, like I said, at the end of this last segment, this is a part of risk management that is so important. We think of risk management as this trade and that trade and all. Part of it is just sitting there going, look, I'm not selling everything. We're not trying to time markets, but I, I'm, I do I will not invest in things because I am afraid that they're going to go higher and I'm going to miss out. That is not a logical reason to invest. That's a great way to lose money. Okay. It's just a great way to lose money. Take my word for it. People will never stop doing it. And then when they do it, they will rationalize it. And then when it goes down, they'll probably rationalize double upping on it. And that's how you lose a lot of money, right? It's a tale as old as time. As long as there's been markets, we've seen people do stuff like that. And one of the ways to avoid it, and it doesn't always mean it's fun. It doesn't always mean it works. It usually doesn't work right away. But one of the reasons you avoid that or one of the ways you avoid that and get better returns over time with substantially less volatility is by, you know, being like Buffett, mercilessly paying attention to the fundamentals and looking at them even harder when nobody else is. You know, there's that old adage, Chase and I joke about this in the interview that we do, but there's this thing I've said all the time, which is, at the top of every bull market, everybody's a technician. At the bottom of every bear market, everybody's a value investor, right? And what I mean by that is at the top of a bull market, animal spirits are running wild. People feel bulletproof. The only reason they need for to buy a stock is they see a good chart that looks like it's breaking out. Oh, it's new all-time high. You got to get on it. And they've seen it happen so many times over the cycle that it becomes like a law, right? Now, inversely... When you get to the bottom of bear markets, people have had their teeth kicked in because they weren't paying attention to valuations and everybody becomes a forensic accountant. accountant. And usually they miss a lot of opportunities because they come, become too pessimistic, right? What we really need to do, and Chase and I laugh about this in the conversation, what, literally, if you did the inverse, you'd have a phenomenal track record. Meaning the minute you recognize you're in a market that no longer cares and, and ebulliently no longer cares, right? So there's, there's enthusiasm, there's upward energy. And, and nobody cares about valuations. That's a market that you sh- you'd sell and then buy it, go regardless of valuation after the market gets killed and everybody becomes the forensic accountant, then go buy your basket of favorite stocks. If you just did that, you'd outperform the market by miles. And yet, why don't people do it? Well, because, you know, that's a form of market timing too. And we don't want to, but, but why don't they do it? Because Markets are built of humans and humans are subject to human behavior and it never changes and we're subject to emotions. And the hardest thing in investing to do is sit there patiently and diligently making less than or no money while you're watching all these other people do things that you know are irresponsible, make a ton of money and sitting there and staying disciplined till it turns. It's hard. It's not fun. It was a lot more fun last year when we were hanging right around even and not really getting hit for you know the vast majority of the year and had a couple of, you know, where we took little hits, but we got out of the year pretty clean. Markets down big, NASDAQ down 30 plus, S&P down 20 plus, bonds down 20 plus. You know, we're floating around down a little. Uh, that felt a lot better than it has this year. We're, you know, right there, our two portfolios combined are up like 2% or something like that on the year. Values basically flat after today. I think momentum's up four. So maybe we're up a little bit more than that or whatever, but um, that hasn't been fun. But I think it's setting up to be fun. The other thing I think is interesting is that look at how much rates have pulled back here. Right? You've, had a, you've had a meaningful pullback in rates. 
Stock market has not made new highs. The Dow is pushing up. But what I'm saying is that that meteoric run that we saw, I just think it's really interesting. Now, we'll see. Like I said, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be shocked at all to see a ramp into year end because this is a market that doesn't care about fundamentals and expecting it to care tomorrow is probably, you know, it will care at some point. I have no idea when that is. I think it's coming and I think it's coming pretty soon just because the economic data is deteriorating in a way that I just, I just don't think the illusion can live that much longer. But could it go on for another month, month and a half? Sure. It's disconnected from reality. But like I said, here's the here's the point. I don't think anybody would argue and include all the bull arguments are based on lower rates. So why don't you buy something that can make money when rates go down and the economy goes into recession, but also can make money when rates go down and you don't go into a recession? Right? Meaning, let's say if their soft landing narrative is correct. That's why you got to buy the stock market. Well, if your soft landing narrative is correct, why would I buy the stock market? There's more money to be made at much more reasonable prices and yields in bonds. I, I had a conversation with a with a buddy of mine that's an investor the other day that is is uh, bullish, and I said that to him, and it's kind of just stopped him right in his tracks. He didn't have an answer, and I said, "No, man, I'm not trying to say you're dumb. I'm not saying you're wrong. I don't know that." But if that's your whole argument, why are you buying a market that's trading at 26 times earnings when you can when you can buy a US government bond with twice the earnings yield of the overall market and that's paying you a guaranteed 5 4.5%? And what's the answer? You're afraid of missing out on another stock run, right? You're you're making an emotional investment decision rather as an is an intellectual one. And look, this is the toughest thing about investing. It's all about a batting average, right? Meaning there will be times where you make the disciplined investment and it will not work out or it will not work out the best, or there'll be other things that worked out better. Here's why we do it. Because making the disciplined investment decision prevents us from taking the big, huge hits, right? It's risk management. And remember, this is a game where you can see a guy sitting there, you know, it's kind of like ARK, right? A-R-K-K. You guys have heard me beat up a lot of people crowing about, man, Kathy Wood's up, what is it, 65% this year. And I'm like, well, yeah, but she lost 80 over the, pre <laughs> over the previous, she lost 80% over the previous two and a half years, right? Like, meaning if you lose 80% and I don't lose anything, Right, my ten percent gain beats your forty percent gain in terms of the amount of money that it pays me. Right, so it's just a time to be sober, right? and that's our calling card, guys. Risk management. The other thing I'll tell you, the other opportunity out there right now. Now, I still don't want people loaded up in these things because that's where it gets dangerous, and that's where people get really hurt by these insurance salesmen that try to convince them to put all of their money into structured products or universal life policies or even annuities. But man, some of these fixed index annuities, I was doing a, yeah, some of these fixed index annuities with these higher rates as a supplement to the bond side of your portfolio. Again, it's not a stock replacement, but man, if you're out there and you're a risk averse investor and you know, you own some bonds, but you know, you also need some inflation protection in your portfolio. And you, I, man, some of these, we were looking at one the other day that's offering, again, guaranteed against loss with no fee. Now, this is a volatility controlled index that averages between four to 5% a year. So it's not the S&P 500, but they're offering 300% of that index performance. So if the index is up 4%, you get a 12% return. Guaranteed against loss without a fee. I, again, I'm not saying it's right for everybody. I don't own one. Okay. So it, it really, people hear the word annuity and a lot of, you, you, you sometimes I don't even like talk about it because people assume that you're like an insurance huckster or whatever. Um, they're, oh, he's trying to pitch an annuity. Just, I, I, it drives me nuts. It just, it bloody drives me nuts. I'll give you another example. There was a, there was, what was it? MetLife. I want to say in 2007, MetLife was offering a fixed annuity that paid a guaranteed 8% for not income, like capital appreciation, like eight, seven, was it seven and a half, eight percent And you could add money to it. That was an annuity. You could buy that in 2007. I mean, 
do you know how bad that annuity killed bonds? Do you know how many bad how bad some of our annuities or most of our annuities or virtually all of them actually have beaten bonds? Hasn't been that hard. But my point is there's plenty out there, guys. All about risk management, less risk, more upside, less fees. Give us a call, 866-779-RISK. Again, 866-779-RISK. Go to the radio show website, knowyourriskradio.com, boardcapitalmanagement.com. You guys know the drill. We're going to run after this break. We're going to run a few minutes of that Chase, me and Chase's uh, discussion. And you can always, as always, get the rest of our conversation on Know Your Risk Radio podcast. You can find us on Apple's podcast. It's actually pretty widely listened to now, so it's easy to find. Any podcast uh, deal you got, you can get our daily dots on there. All of it's for free. Our interviews, the show, the whole shoot match. Don't want to miss Chase lay out the details for us on the what's really going on in the economy. So right when we get back from the break, we'll run, I don't know, 10, 12 minutes of that deal. And uh, after that, we'll see you next week. Got another great interview lined up for next week. You're not going to want to miss it. So stick with us through the break. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Know Your Risk Radio podcast. Download and subscribe at knowyourriskradio.com. Do better in bull markets. Do better in bear markets. Pay less fees in all markets. You're listening to Know Your Risk Radio with Zach Abraham, Chief Investment Officer at Bulwark Capital Management. You can subscribe to Zach's free newsletter, The Bulwark Insider Report, at knowyourriskradio.com. How many times in recent memory has your financial advisor not reacted to current events and also not made a change in your investment portfolio? Now, think about all the volatile events during that time that have threatened your retirement. That's Zach Abraham, Chief Investment Officer at Bulwark Capital and host of the Know Your Risk Radio podcast. Todd, we talk about it all the time. Risk management. It's our number one focus. We actively manage every portfolio daily, looking for opportunities to lower risk, lower cost, and give you as much upside as possible. Let us show you how Bulwark's risk management strategy can protect that retirement you've worked so hard for. This is exactly why you need Zach and Bulwark Capital in your corner. You only get one retirement. Learn how Bulwark does it with their free common sense investing guide. Call 866-779-RISK or simply go to knowyourriskradio.com. That's 866-779-RISK or go to knowyourriskradio.com. Investment advisory services offer through Tech Financial LLC and SEC Registered Investment Advisor. You're listening to Know Your Risk Radio with Zach Abraham, Chief Investment Officer at Bulwark Capital Management. And we are back. Thank you so much for sticking with us. And a little bit different this time, doing an interview, and we're going to put more of this. I don't know. We'll see. Maybe maybe we'll put the entirety of it on uh, on the show today. Uh, But I'm joined with our head of research, Chase Taylor, um, the proprietor of Pinecone Macro. It's how how a macro research firm that Chase owns, and that's how we started working together. He's been on with us several times, and a lot of you probably hear us do the daily dots. Again, for those of you that don't know, we do about a 15, try to keep it between 15 to 20 minutes a day. Uh, Again, we just think we're in really historic times, and you know, just basically memorializing or observing on a day-to-day basis of every single day, every move that happens and trying to, the goal was to make a 15 to 20 minute daily podcast that breaks down everything important that happened in markets and the economy that day and in financial news and geopolitically, right? Everything that relates to money and finance, um, just because we want to document what we think is a pretty historic time. And uh, so the other reason we did it is because, um, and it's not because we disagree with them, but there's just there's just so much bad financial news out there. You turn it on and you, you know, you do this for a living, you see what happens in a day and you turn it on and listen to what they're talking about. And it, it just, they're just usually so far off and just moronic. So we just wanted to give a, a, a daily update where people can get the real deal, right? What was really going on? So anyway, uh, Chase, you are here with us today. Thank you so much for joining us, my friend. Always. I know you, you. I know you really look forward to doing these. Uh, well, you, you don't mind, right? It's not your favorite thing, but you don't mind coming on and doing these things, do you? No, not at all. Okay, well, there you go, uh, man. One of the things I want to have you on for is, especially on the show, right? The radio show that that the folks are all listening to. Um, just because I feel like w- we are watching an extraordinarily synchronous, at least I I don't want to put words in your mouth. I'll let you kind of lay out the scenario, but there's still so much talk and so much belief. There's still much ebullience built up around the market moves this year. And it, it, the price action, it's really, it's really exciting. Everybody's, Oh, markets come back. Um, 
And what's really fascinating to me is the juxtaposition with the actual underlying data, because the market and the economic fundamentals are literally heading in opposite directions right now. Um, and the synchronization of the bad economic data, and I don't want to be hyperbolic, you know, like we say on the dots, it's not horrible yet, but it, the synchronization, the uniformity of it is that's what's surprising to me that more people aren't paying attention. So why don't you kind of lay out again, that's, that's sort of my rendition, me teeing you up and you can feel free to agree or disagree with different points that I made, but why don't you kind of give everybody a 30,000 foot view um, from the economic data side and, and just kind of explain to us and me and the, you know, the listeners, everybody listening, what's really going on because the stories and the narratives they're hearing in the mainstream media, they're just not accurate. So lay out for us what, what we really see happening in the data. Sure. So I think, I think what happened really is, is the third quarter has really gotten a lot of people kind of confused because we had what's now 5.2% GDP growth. And I think people take GDP growth a little too seriously when it comes to markets and the economy even um, on its own. But I think a lot of people extrapolated that. And the reality was it was kind of a one-off quarter, which is starting to show itself. But when it comes to economic data, I'll start with the fact that, yeah, we had 5.2% growth in the third quarter. But as of this afternoon, the Atlanta Fed has the fourth quarter GDP growth at 1.2%. And that's down from 2.1% just two weeks ago. And that the downward revision to that was mostly consumer spending. So the consumer just went off in the third quarter. I mean, they just they spent a lot of money. And it seems like the consumer is kind of finally pulling back um, here in the fourth quarter. And, you know, this is something we've talked about a lot on the show, especially the Daily Dots um, in, in the last few weeks and even months was you had a lot of catalysts to possibly get the consumer to slow down, whether that was running out of excess savings or um, their wages, wage gains slowing down or having to pay back student loans. There was just kind of a lot going on right around the like October, you know, early October, late September kind of time frame. And it seems like it might actually be materializing to where that stuff is, you know, pressing the consumer at this point, not to mention just, just, uh, you know, interest rates the, we we can see in the data, the fact that, um, interest payments as a percentage of disposable income for households is all of a sudden skyrocketing. So you know it's actually squeezing people, um, especially young people. So not to mention, so one of the data points I think that is, has kept us so anchored and not getting too excited about things like great growth in the third quarter was delinquency rates. So people not paying on time for things like auto loans and credit cards and um, similar you know, household debt. The fact, the fact that so that that was skyrocketing, and we're not talking about like back to pre-pandemic. We're talking about over a decade highs, kind of like the aftermath of the GFC after a lot of people defaulted. And we're talking about those levels for things like cars um, and credit cards, and these people have jobs. So it's just it was really hard to move off of that data point for me personally because if you can't make your car payment with a job, if you lose your job, it's going to be a big problem. Um, and we haven't really seen a lot of job losses yet, but we are seeing hiring really weaken. Um, and then something I, I mentioned to you yesterday, but in the jobless claims data that came out yesterday. So in any, any state that has more than a thousand new claims, they offer them the opportunity to basically put in a comment about it in three different States mentioned, um, job losses piling up in, in construction, which really that, that kind of, really stood out to me. That's something we've been talking about again for months, like as a thing to really keep an eye on. Um, but throughout that whole third quarter, whenever we had really strong growth, manufacturing stayed in a recession, retail companies like really didn't do that well. Uh, even services, um, purchasing managers, indexes, things like that. They, they I mean, they were, they were okay, but they weren't that strong. So you had a lot of underlying data you could look at. And then that was telling you, sure, we're having a great quarter. Um, but, a, it's not going to sustain, and, and, and B, it, it it's not going to you know preclude us from having a significant slowdown going into twenty twenty four. Well, so the, the data really is showing us that we're at the end of the day. What's showing us is, is inflation's coming down a lot, and growth is now starting to come down uh, somewhat materially. Well, yeah, and and 
for those people out there that would celebrate the inflation coming down, um, remember, guys, that's not always a good thing. It's usually not a good thing, meaning that's what happens in recessions, right? Like they, that's what happens. Like that's it, – it's an economy contracting is deflation, right? It's the opposite of inflation. So it's it, – that's why I've been kind of laughing about – uh, you know, the Biden administration taking victory laps on inflation. You're like, well, first of all, uh, you're still way above the Fed's target, at least on CPI. Um, I guess their target is to PCE, but whatever. Um, and you're sitting there going, yeah, well, guys, that's, you know, in a recession, <laughs> inflation goes down. Um, and I think you hit, I think you hit something that, that is really pertinent in all of this too, was discussing the construction jobs. And this is one of the reasons. And I guess this is the point that I was getting to. It it doesn't surprise, and I know it doesn't surprise me at all. It doesn't surprise you at all to see construction starting to roll over. Meaning, you know, that's one of the reasons we keep an eye out at leading economic indicators, right? When you see uh, permits for multi-housing and all that, you know, for, for construction, when you see permits and architectural plans plummeting, uh, it's, pretty good indication that you're going to have a slowdown in construction, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, the, the funny thing about that, that kind of data is it, it, it pretty much genuinely lets you know where you're heading. Um, so it's kind of a, despite the fact, most people just ignore it anyway, but, but at the same time, you know, it, it's been something that we, or at least I have definitely expected to kind of peak and roll over, I would say for the last few months and it so far it, it hasn't. And we got construction spending data out today. Um, that was, you know, better than expected. So, but, but at the same time, like all I see whenever I look at, all right, guys, we got to end the interview there, uh, as we're running out of time, but as always, you can listen to the rest of it on know your risk radio podcast on any of the podcasting sites. And you're going to want to hear the rest of this conversation. Cause I, I just don't think you're getting the real economics story anywhere else that I hear or listen to. So anyway, have a great weekend. We'll see you next week. You're listening to Know Your Risk Radio podcast. Download and subscribe to knowyourriskradio.com. Thanks for listening to Know Your Risk Radio with Zach Abraham, Chief Investment Officer at Bulwark Capital. Whether it's preservation of capital or an aggressive growth strategy, every investor needs a clearly defined risk profile. Schedule your free risk review with Zach Abraham now at knowyourriskradio.com. Zach will be back with more Know Your Risk Radio next Saturday at noon on 97.3 Cairo FM and AM 770 KTTH. The opinions expressed in this program are for general informational purposes only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual or on any specific security. It is only intended to provide education about the financial industry. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult your financial advisor prior to investing. Any past performance discussed during this program is no guarantee of future results. Any indices referenced for comparison are unmanaged and cannot be invested into directly. As always, please remember investing involves risk and possible loss of principal capital. Please seek advice from a licensed professional. Investment advice cannot be given without a client service agreement. Bulwark Capital Management is an investment advisor representative of Trek Financial, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor.